Welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Those of you who are fans of the groundbreaking show Shit's Creek, you are in for a treat with this episode. We are speaking with Dr. Emily Garside, who has done perhaps some of the most intensive research into that show and uh, how, again, it has completely shifted what we are talking about when we're talking about queer representation in the mainstream media. I want to let you know that this is actually the first of three conversations that we are having with Dr. Garside. I wanted to do something a little bit different and do a three-part deep dive because a number of listeners reached out to me and told me actually that they are looking for guest speakers for Pride 2024. And Dr. Garside has a lot to offer to your school community. So across the next three weeks, we will be exploring the different reasons that you might want to connect with Dr. Garside and invite them to come and work with your students, with your parent caretaker community, and of course, with your teachers. Because Dr. Garside has done so much research in so many different ways, I also want to remind you that I have a special free guide that's about helping your student advocacy groups understand and leverage the power of AI research tools to further the campaigns and the advocacy work that they are doing on your campus. The link to that is over in the show notes. And I have committed this year to offer a few free workshops for student groups who are curious about what AI can do for their efforts. I'm hoping to add three more to my spring. So if that's of interest to you, you'll find my contact information over there in the show notes. Please reach out if you've got a student group who you think would be interested in learning more about ways to explore AI-powered research tools. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about this week's guest. Um, again, our emphasis for this week is going to be talking about the research that they've done into the show Shit's Creek, and Dr. Emily Garside has an entire book out about that. Dr. Garside is a writer and passionate communicator about the value of LGBTQ plus stories in popular culture. She's queer, neurodiverse, and she's a writer and facilitator who's always seeking new writing, research, and speaking opportunities. As both a journalist and critic, Dr. Garside understands the relationship between the audience and the production. They trained in theater in Montreal and at RADA before completing a PhD in theatrical responses to the AIDS crisis. Dr. Garside currently specializes in the history of queer culture with a particular interest in media representation. Dr. Garside's books span theater and TV and their creative work in theater. We are going to talk about a different research project and book this week, next week, and the week after. So I hope you enjoy this first episode in a three-part series that digs deep into the important research from Dr. Emily Garside. Now, on with the conversation. Dr. Garside, your book, You Are My Happy Ending, delves into the massive, huge hit TV show, Shit's Creek. 
The show's got a nuanced portrayal of LGBTQ plus characters, and your book looks at that. So can you walk listeners through the way in which that TV show Shit's Creek challenged what we thought about when we were thinking about uh, so-called traditional character tropes? I think for me, the, the sort of key thing in that show was that those characters just existed. And it sounds really simple when you say it like that, but the idea that they were just in this world, in this show, in the town within the show, and they were just allowed to exist. And most of the time, their queerness, their identity wasn't the main topic of conversation. They were just, you know, in the case of David and Patrick, who are the, the central queer characters in it, they're just having a relationship like anyone else might do. It wasn't made a big deal of that it's, oh my God, we're putting a gay couple or, you know, a two men in a relationship at the center of this show. What are we going to do? It just sort of happens very organically. You know, we already know about David's identity, at least anyway, because he talks about it. But again, that just sort of exists for the first few seasons and he's just allowed to date, to be who he is, all of that. And there was never a question in the universe of the show about any morality around them, any outcry from the people in the town. The biggest outcry or like discomfort we get is David's parents being worried about him. And it's not even necessarily that because he, in David's case, is pansexual, it's more that David's just a bit of a romantic disaster in life and they're just worried that he's going to continue to be that and like he's going to get hurt or all of these like very authentic parental concerns that you'd have and equally at that same time their friends in the town in this case it's you know it's Roland and Jocelyn the mayor and his wife who are just like yeah you just gotta let your kids do what your kids are gonna do and they're just very accepting and you would think in that environment because it's set in small town middle of nowhere town you would expect the small town mayor to be the one being like oh my god like queer people in my town or whatever and he's just like yeah whatever and I think that sort of really chill attitude of everyone in the show was really refreshing because it wasn't some big conversation about their identities and even with more sort of peripheral characters so you've got like Ronnie who you know works with the mayor as well she's like you know a, a contractor of some kind of, not entirely clear what Ronnie did for a job but like she's got all these jobs in town and it becomes obvious towards the end that she is also a queer character and she's seen at the local bar going home with a woman and that's the entire sort of conversation about it is just like she's going home with that woman now and in another show in other conversations it would have been a huge deal we would have had to have like a whole episode introducing her like having a big drama about it but actually it's just like hey these queer people exist they're just living their lives and that was really revolutionary in itself and then Equally, even when they did bigger storylines like Patrick's sort of realisation of his sexuality, his coming out eventually, it gave weight to those moments as a character moment. Obviously coming out to his parents is a really big moment for the character, but it didn't do it in a kind of moralistic, like lesson of an episode kind of way. It didn't do it in a kind of scandalised, oh my God, Patrick's gay now, you know, this is going to be a big, you know, big deal episode because he's gay. It was just like, no, we're just going to do the story as it's important to the characters, but it didn't necessarily make it a big deal to the audience, which actually really works effectively for inclusion, tolerance, and just normalising the fact that people of all genders and sexualities are just existing in the world as they do in this show. Your book 
broadens what it is that we're talking about when we're talking about queerness. And of course, Schitt's Creek has a massive fan base. I feel like for folks who are in social media somewhat regularly, it's not uncommon for you to see GIFs, memes of Schitt's Creek. It's just one of those shows that it seems is very, very present in um, kind of social conversation. And I'm wondering how your interaction, perhaps with some fans of the show, maybe pushed you or nudged you to think about how we need a broader conversation about queerness. It's so interesting because it's such a rich array of people who love this show. And I think that has had many brilliant conversations, many sometimes challenging conversations as well. I think it's the thing when anything gets popular, obviously the more people who are gonna be talking about it, the more likely you are to run into the whole range of like life experience and sort of opinions and all of those things. And I think I've had some really brilliant conversations in unexpected ways. So for example, when Dan Levy wore his outfit to the Met Gala, which honored an AIDS activist and sort of talked back to that piece of history, I wrote an article about it and shared it in a few fan groups and stuff like that. And I had the most interesting conversations with people who I think it's fair to say don't in their everyday lives think about AIDS activism, don't think about that era of queerness. You know, I, from guessing from the interactions we had, talking with like older women from North America, from around Europe, who are just a little bit away from that world, whereas I'm very much immersed in that world. And they had such positive conversations as a result of him wearing that outfit reading either my article or other news articles and going, oh, I knew nothing about this man whose work he's wearing. I knew nothing about maybe all of the activism that went on then. Oh, that's really interesting. I might go and find out more about it. And I think moments like that, that really open up kind of conversations to things that maybe did pass people by, because you know, if it wasn't on your radar at the time, if you're not in that world for whatever reason, you wouldn't have reason to. And similarly, a lot of the conversations that were either around you know, older people who are maybe Johnny and Moira's age from the show, who maybe don't have queer children or queer close relatives, were kind of going, oh, I can now put myself in the shoes of people my own age and kind of going, oh, well, if Johnny and Moira are really inclusive and they're people my age, great. And there was lots of positive conversations around those sort of age group and demographic kind of going, well, I'm using this show to explain it to other people my age or to people maybe in my environment who are very conservative and things like that. And I think that has always been a really enlightening sort of element of it because as well as a younger person, as a queer person, it's easy to sort of be in my own bubble as well and not think about how those conversations go with people who do need sometimes maybe the tools, which in this case can be a TV show, to have those conversations and to interact with others. And then equally, I think for sort of the queer fans of the show who obviously really rallied behind it, really fell in love with it. I think those conversations around going, oh, this is a world where we feel safe as like a group of people and a world where we'd love to live in that town as much as maybe some of us never saw ourselves living like David in the show in the middle of nowhere town somewhere, kind of going, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if this town existed and kind of imagining that version of sort of community for ourselves where it's not necessarily you have to move to the big city you don't have to like have these big sort of bars pubs clubs to feel like you have safe spaces it's just oh wouldn't it be nice to live in a world that is like this town and i think that's a really lovely sort of thing that came out of those conversations 
And then equally as well, just all the creativity that comes when there's fandom. Yes, there's sort of slightly weird creativity sometimes in fandom too, but things like fans writing fan fiction that explored their own queer experience is always a really beautiful thing to me. And the fact that the characters of David and Patrick specifically, I think helped a lot of queer fans to talk about their own experience, whichever one of them they identified with most closely, to explore maybe, you know, their own coming out through Patrick's coming out, to explore how they feel about relationships through David's relationships, all of those things. I think when fans engage on like that really deep level with something that they love, it really often allows for an exploration of all those things that maybe are more difficult to talk about and explore in everyday conversation because you have the medium of the show to talk about it through and all of that. And I think just to touch on like the flip side of not negative, because I don't think there's a lot of negative around Schitt's Creek, but the, oh, what, what could still be done better? What could improve? I think the idea that it sort of highlights what is still missing in those conversations. So actually, if it's a real revelation to people that queer people can just exist and be accepted, um, if it was a moment of like, oh, resistance when they realised that Patrick was queer or that David was queer, it's one of those kind of conversations where you kind of go, yeah, there is still work to do. And hopefully shows like this are a way of facilitating that conversation. And even if occasionally it's a bit difficult because people maybe are in their bubble and that's not their fault, then we use the shows and the language that the shows gives us maybe to like start those conversations and it's never going to be overnight but I think slowly and surely that happens with you know positive sort of role model um, cultural moments like Schitt's Creek. So Dr. Garside your answers are just music to my ears. My work with K-12 educators I am always talking about the interplay of media literacy, information literacy, and any DEIJ work that you're doing. I think there's a lot to learn by interrogating the stories that are very popular and also asking questions about um, why some stories don't make it to um, that kind of main, um, you know, popular acclaim as shows like Schitt's Creek do. And I think bringing an academic lens to popular culture is a great activity. It's a relevant activity to engage learners in. So I'm hoping we can take a step back. And I'm wondering if you can just demystify your process. What do you do when you are doing um, your research into a TV show? Can you just walk listeners through your process a little bit? For me, it's very similar to sort of what you're talking about in that I am such an advocate for media literacy, critical reading of media and kind of that that's how we understand our world, right? So that's what I've done a lot of anyway. So for me, looking at this show was kind of a combination of like analyzing the content of it. So analyzing, you know, the way that characters of different, you know, backgrounds are represented in it, be that, you know, the queer characters or even in this case, the Jewish characters. Um, I make a case for, you know, neurodivergence being represented by the roses quite significantly and all of that kind of stuff. So a lot of minority representation and thinking about where does that fit in the other minority representation that we've had on screen over the years and kind of factoring that in. And then also sort of particularly in looking at it through an LGBTQ plus lens, thinking 
where does this sit in this evolution of representation that we're hopefully in, you know, that we're hopefully not regressing in our evolution of um, representation on screen, but also in the broader sort of community, because obviously a show like Schitt's Creek, but in very simple terms, it ends with a wedding between two men. Well, that wouldn't have really been possible 15, 20 years ago, because that wouldn't have represented the society we're in. And it's kind of looking that parallel line of kind of how society and sort of culture keep up with each other or don't. I would probably argue that we still see substantially less representation, even in line with the rights that LGBTQ people have had. You know, I don't know, I have no statistics on it, but the number of like queer weddings on screen versus straight weddings, I don't think it's difficult maths to kind of go, there's substantially more straight weddings still on our screens. Um, and sort of matching up things like that and sort of, I spent a little while sort of just mulling over, you know, what the key themes were that I'd be looking at and then sort of narrowed it down to looking at that representation and how it sort of offers a window into the where are we now sort of thing. And actually, ideally, in, you know, years to come, the idea would be we wouldn't need so many deep dives into shows that represent sort of minority groups in whatever sort of fashion they are. But I think it's still really important when something is quite groundbreaking or at least becomes quite popular in the way Shit's Creek does to ask how it does and doesn't represent. And then another element that's always interested me, which is what we were just talking about, is the way that fans engage with text particularly. And like not every show like this that has representation inspires the same level of like fan devotion. So kind of looking in this show and going, what was it about it? And like, you know, my argument would be it was both kind of a cultural moment of both the pandemic, the isolation we were all feeling, um, cultural moment politically as well, particularly in North America, um, although in the UK where I am too, definitely, of like right wing um, pushback against rights and all of that made people lean into something that was joyous and safe and offered an alternative to what they're going through. So it's kind of that push and pull as well of kind of how shows are representing how we've changed, but also how they're representing or asking people to imagine a better community. And I think that offers like an insight into what the media and cultural things are, are doing for us. Um, and also then in sort of thinking about, yeah, where do we go from here is always the kind of question I like to sort of end on in that it's not asking what's the next Shit's Creek, what's the next hot TV show that's going to do this, but really what's the next conversation then that we should be having through TV? Because I think there's always another conversation to be having. So Dr. Garside, at this point, I am willing to guess there's a few listeners who are thinking, this is great. I want to inspire my students or, you know, listen to their inspiration about what it means to dig in, to do research about TV, about film. What's your process like? Do you have kind of like a framework, a methodology? Is it more chaotic? Um, can you just tell us a little bit of a, maybe like a fun fact about um, how you go about doing the work and the research that you do? It's, it's usually quite chaotic, um, if I'm perfectly honest, but it's also kind of usually, if I can't get a show or a moment in a show out of my mind, or I kind of, um, I almost end up like mentally writing like mini essays or mini sets of thoughts on things first and kind of see if that can expand into something. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's a one-off thing, like maybe it's about one episode or, you know, one element of, of a film or something like that. But if it kind of sits there for a long time, I usually know that there's something in it. And I think 
for me, it's a couple of things. It's either a key moment, like an episode or a moment in an episode that I can't get out of my head and I think, oh, that's really significant. Or it's a particular character arc or a storyline that I kind of go, oh, there's something really important in that and I want to unpick it and sort of figure out. It's like the puzzle piece of like figure out why it feels important. So I think in a sense of saying to students, I would often say, what's the thing that you can't get out of your head and is that a person is it a moment is it even one scene anything and ask yourself why like why is that something that I keep thinking about and what's important about it and what can I learn from it um for Schitt's Creek it was for me uh the cabaret episode arc so when they decide that they're going to make cabaret and that's like very personal to me in the sense of I come from a theatre background like musical theatre was my background I very obsessed with cabaret anyway but also it's this big spider web for me because cabaret is such a queer musical it's got so many links to queer culture and I was like they could have picked any musical you know we've all seen good bad and ugly musical theatre episodes of tv over the years and some of them have much more thought put into them than others but I was like oh I don't know that Dan Levy thought about it as much as I did to be perfectly honest at this point because I've thought about it a lot but they certainly thought about it enough to know that those links were there because you can't know that musical and not think about a lot of the links to sort of queer culture, Jewish culture, minority culture in general, all of those things. Um, so that for me was my, oh, I need to write something about this show. And then equally, I think writing about or thinking about, which runs in parallel to that really, is Patrick's coming out story and the importance of coming out stories still to the community but also older people's coming out stories all of that kind of thing made me think about where it sits differently to other queer shows when we've had quite a wave of which is a really awesome thing but um, shows geared towards maybe teenagers and children that are representing kind of what that stage of LGBTQ plus life looks like which is super important but also because we then had a show that was talking to a slightly older generation um, around similar themes, it just made me think about where we were, where we'd come from, all of that kind of stuff. And I think for me, I tend to sit with those ideas for a while and figure it out. And then I tend to do a lot of my idea gathering before I do the research because I kind of want to have in my head what I think it is, what I think I'm talking about what I think my argument is, and then I can sort of feed into that with research because I wouldn't want to be sort of subconsciously absorbing everyone else's opinions before I have formulated my own. And I think when you're talking about cultural texts like TV and film or books even, your initial reaction is quite important to capture in order to formulate your argument down the line. Uh, and you can of course change your opinion and that's always a good thing if it's informed by research, but you don't want to have it handed to you in the first place either. So I think that's what I tend to do. Um, I know we're also going to talk about Russell T Davis, but he puts it in a brilliant way for all writing. He calls it the maybe, which is when it's all sort of floating around in your head and sitting there and it could go in any direction, but it's when you know it's something and it just floats there for a while and then eventually you create it into something. So that's how it tends to start for me. And then I will start, you know, somewhat chaotically pulling a million one other things out of the air for it. So Dr. Garside, part of my covert agenda with asking you to do this three-part series with me 
is, again, listeners were asking about some potential interesting guests for Pride. Again, of course, uh, you do not have to invite Dr. Garside in only for Pride, but I do think you'd make a phenomenal guest because, in part, because you can speak to so many different things. You know, we've been talking about the research and book that you've published on Schitt's Creek. So, uh, again, if you've got a teacher team who loves Schitt's Creek, I think this is a real opportunity but we've also touched on fan fiction, and I think increasingly more and more students are becoming engaged in fan fiction. I'm wondering if you can walk us through what some of the learning opportunities might be there for that, to put an emphasis on um, what is you know, an incredible community and a huge and growing community. I've, I've talked about fan fiction in loads of work for sort of oh god a decade or more um i think this will date me and my fandoms but i was talking about sherlock fan fiction back in like you know 2011 2012 at conferences because uh, i'm based in cardiff where that was filmed and I, I used to do a lot of talking about that but i last year as well for the bishopsgate institute in london ran their first course on fan fiction which was like such fun um which was geared more to adults but young people were absolutely welcome to come as well and I love talking about fan fiction because it is such a sort of democratizing, freeing world in which particularly young people can engage and explore identities and also explore sort of all of this cultural representation stuff that I'm talking about on their own terms, which is so exciting because obviously we don't all get to be in charge of our own TV show. I wish, but we don't. But we can be in charge of our own stories. And I love talking about the way that fan fiction empowers people to do that and how it also sort of empowers creativity in people. And it's for so many people and anyone, you know, who is associated with anyone who has done that will know it's such a sort of door opening moment for so many people in both creativity, in exploration of identity. And there's so much to be discussed in that, even if people don't think that it's for them or that they don't know much about it. I'm always a real advocate for actually there's a lot to learn from the way we talk about fan fiction and even if it's not fan fiction specifically the way we engage as fans of things and how we explore our own sort of identities and where we belong through being a fan of things is something I love to sort of talk about and sort of run workshops on and I always get so many other ideas from the young people I talk to on them which is really exciting as well um, but for me it's always been a huge part of my sort of creativity as well so I think it's a really great thing to sort of use as an example of I guess how you do that cultural critical engagement and learn from it while also sort of fueling yourself creatively which is a really lovely thing for everyone as well. I love that you bring that up because I actually think you know if we're talking about communities or online communities fan fiction spaces are overwhelmingly so supportive positive and joyful and I really think we need more of that too. 100% yeah and you know those the phrase like safe spaces gets overused sometimes but actually for so many people it can be one of their first safe spaces albeit virtually to find their people or to find people who can both educate and support them and then they pay that forward and it becomes a really beautiful thing actually and I think that is a really important element of fandom and that side of it. 
So, listeners, if you want to talk Shit's Creek, if you want to talk about research into TV and film, or you want to talk about fan fiction, you'll be able to find out more about what we discussed in this episode by heading over to the show notes. You'll find Dr. Emily Garside's contact, and we hope you tune in again next week to find out more about their critical research and, yes, another book they've written. Take care. See you next Thursday.